it's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here this morning. Glad to be back with you guys. As Mike said, I actually uh, was on staff here for a while. Even before that, I uh, attended this church beginning in the late 80s. When I started uh, attending Christ Community, it was in the days when you could come and have your pick of which row you wanted. Not just which seat, but which row in the old downtown Franklin building. And uh, the last time I preached here, it's kind of funny... Um, you know, it's been a while, maybe, what, eight, nine, ten years since I was on staff here. And a lot changes in those times. And so the last time I was here, Sue McCallum um, gave me this little note that somebody had put in the offertory plate. And it simply said this, you know, uh, we should look into getting Kevin Twitt on staff because he would be a real asset around this place. <laughs> and um, so I just thought that was funny. So, I, I, you know, I listened to Scotty's sermon last week about... Sort of the old guard and the new guard. And I thought that's, that, that was a great, a great word, a great time here. Um, so we're talking today in the midst of this series about God's spirit and this transforming power. Uh, I, I want to tell you a little story. The other day, I have uh, Cooper, my oldest, is now 11. So some of you that know me for a long time, I now have an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Uh, but Cooper, my 11-year-old, the other day we were sitting at the breakfast table and I just, I don't know why I thought to ask him this, but I just said, Cooper, and well, I got his permission to tell the story, by the way, because I, I hate, I deal with a lot of college students who've had fathers who are pastors that told stories about them, so I don't want to be that guy. But I said, Cooper, what does God think about you today? And he said, how should I know? <laughs> and I thought, oh gosh, I failed. <laughs> but what I actually said was, well... Jesus loves me, this I know, and the Bible, for the Bible tells me so, right? I said, Cooper, did the Bible change while you were sleeping last night? So what does God think about you today? And he smiled and he said, oh yeah. Now in a lot of ways, that's the question we want to consider this morning. What does God think about Christ Community Church and about you all Today, whether you consider this your church home, whether you're just here visiting, wondering, you know, what do people talk about? The old guard, the new guard. I don't know. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. I don't know about any of that. I don't know where they've been. I just know what I'm experiencing right now. The question is, what does God think about his church, Christ Community Church today? And I hope that what we'll see after we spend a little time in God's word this morning is that Jesus loves us. This we know. For the Bible tells us so. And the promises of God confirm it. And the question that you need to ask your doubting heart today, your fearful heart today, is have the promises of God changed overnight while you were sleeping? Did the promises of God change at some point during this last year or two years or three years? And yet, the reality is, that's difficult to believe. It's difficult to believe. I love that, that hymn that we just sang. Um, I found that text in an old hymnal and thought, we really need to be able to sing that. Because for so many people, worship is a time when they feel like they're, they're told in some ways, even by the songs we sing, that they need to put a smiley face on and pretend that everything's fine. When in reality, there's all kinds of fears and faithlessness in our hearts. There's all kinds of questions. And so often we think that those questions and that those doubts are incompatible with faith. 
And so it's so important that we sing songs that speak truly about the Christian life and what the normal Christian life feels like. The normal Christian life feels like wondering if the divine promises are really true. And even if you're not thinking that, you're living that way. And that's what Peter is getting at here in 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you would look at your program there, the whole passage is printed. And we're going to read the whole uh, first 15 verses of 2 Peter. This is God's word. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brethren, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. And are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Let's pray together. Lord, if the Apostle Peter thought this message, the thing that he wanted people to remember after he was gone, then Lord, thank you that he wrote it down because we too need to be reminded of these things. We too need to taste the sweetness of your promises. We too need to remember them. We too need to trust them. We pray now that you would send your spirit to open our eyes, to stir our hearts, to cause us to love you and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when Scotty called me and said, hey, we would like you to come preach at Christ Community Church, my first thought was, really? Really? I don't know if I want to go to Christ Community Church and preach. Uh, It's not that I don't like preaching. It's just, gosh... I've been associated with this place for a long time. And I, I know that it's been hard stuff going on here. 
Not that that's new. <laughs> it was hard stuff. Uh, I, I mean, I just start thinking. I just look around the room and I see faces that I remember really amazing things and really hard things. Right? I mean, this is the place where not only for me personally, but for so many people I know, I've seen some of the deepest healing come to their lives. This place has been such a conduit of healing grace for so many I was thinking today about one time that we were down at the old building downtown and there was there was a, a student in our ministry back then. I don't remember if anybody will remember this, though. It was, it was kind of a big event, so maybe some of you do. At the end of the service, we were singing a few of the songs and one of my students kind of got my attention because this girl that was standing next to her had went into a catatonic state, couldn't move. She'd been so traumatized by so many things. And she had, she had come to Christ's community. It had been a place where she felt the healing power of the gospel. But she wasn't, she wasn't finished yet. And I remember we had to stop the service. Do you, I don't know if you were at the service. We had to stop the service. We had to call 911. I had to pick her up. I had to carry her outside to the parking lot while people prayed. And I think about that because I see this girl all the time. She's married. She's doing well. She's got a baby. And I think about the way God used Christ Community Church and the sense that this was a place for broken people, a safe place for broken people to come. And yet I also know that this has been a place that has brought some of the deepest hurts that any of us have known. And the more I've thought about that, why is it, Lord, that in the same sort of, even in the same thing, you can have some of the deepest healing and yet some of the deepest hurts that you'll ever know? And I thought, well, isn't it that way with any significant relationship? Isn't it that way with marriage? And I think that if you're married to Jesus, you will probably find often at the same time, not to excuse the hurts, but the reality is... If, if, if God is working powerful in your life, it's not all smiley faces and happy times. Often it's through some of the most difficult things. And here's the reality. What I needed to even be reminded, to even get up here this morning, is that God's divine promises are still true today. Not just for me, but for you. And I had to wrestle with, do I really believe that? Because I can, I can sort of, sort of be on the outside and be like, I don't know what's been going on around here lately. I really don't. Uh, I came to one congregational meeting, tried to get up to speed, but, you know, that was a year ago. So who knows where you're at now? So I can't presume, but I know that this is true no matter what. That God's divine promises are what you need to be reminded of today. And it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, at one level, you know, I thought, is Scotty serious? But then I looked at this passage and I was like, really? Is Peter serious? His divine promises have given us everything we need. And the first phrase that came into my mouth was, is that just hyper-spiritual hyperbole? And I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds like Scotty. (laughs) He would say that, you know. I can't get away from this place, right? I mean, doesn't that seem like hyper-spiritual hyperbole? Oh, it doesn't matter what's happened in your life. It doesn't matter what bad things or hard things have happened. All you need are the divine promises. You just need to believe them today. Is that what Peter's saying here? I don't think so. As you look at this passage, Peter seems very clear that this is not an easy word to speak 
or to believe. Because he's speaking to people who are struggling to believe this. Even though he says you're well established in this truth, he tells them that you need to pursue this and you need to pursue fruit and you need to pursue getting this truth deeper and deeper into your hearts. How can he say this? I think the first reason he can say this is because the promises, these divine promises are much bigger than you think. And they're much bigger than I think because these divine promises that Peter speaks about really are echoes of the one promise, capital P. Now, in, in, in the tradition that Christ community is part of, what we call the Reformed tradition, churches that, that have resonated with some of the truths that were rediscovered at the Reformation, namely that we have a need to be regenerated, recreated, reformed by God's grace, And that that's not something we need just once, but we need it every single week, every single day. For churches in that tradition, they often talk about what's called covenant theology. It's what you celebrate in that painting that I know we make reference to all the time, right? The idea that the whole Bible, in a lot of ways, is about God's promise and about how God is the tenacious God who makes and keeps his promises. And the ultimate promise, the promise that all the other promises fit under, is this promise. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it doesn't matter. Your sin cannot thwart God's promise. All the enemies in your life, whether they be Philistines or Babylonians or your boss or your wife or whoever you think is your enemy today, cannot thwart God's promise that he will be your God and you will be his people. Right? Paul tells the Corinthians... That all the promises of God, and NIV puts it, as many promises as God has made. And you don't have to read the Bible very far to see that there's a whole lot of promises. But I love the King James even more. It says, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That as many promises as God has made, they are fulfilled by Jesus and by his coming. In other words... At one level, you can say there are divine promises, but they're all echoes, reverberations, if you will, of the one promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. In fact, the gospel itself is a promise. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. And you say, oh, really? I thought the gospel started with Jesus coming. And, and you're like, and, and, and furthermore, if I think about that, where is that written? That's written in Genesis. But it's not the scripture that says it. It was God who said it. But you see, in the mind of the Bible writers, God says and scripture says are really the same thing so that they can interchange them. And if you look at what God says to Abraham, he makes him a promise. And when Paul talks about it, he says the gospel was preached. In other words, think of the gospel as the promise. The promise that God has made and the promise that God has kept. So the promises are bigger than we think. And one of the reasons we may think Peter is exaggerating here is because we think of the promises as like little things that fit inside a box. I had, when I first became a Christian, I think my mom bought me one of those little promise boxes. You ever have one of those? 
They still sell those at Christian bookstores? Maybe they do. It was like this little plastic box. It had some flowery verse on the top. And you open it up and it had a little card. It had a promise for every day. I don't remember it having all the promises, though. It didn't have, in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> that, you know. Um, or Paul's call to ministry. I'm going to show him how much he should suffer for my name. But those promises were conveniently absent. But yet the fact is... It was a right instinct to, as a new Christian, draw me to the promises. Jack Miller used to say sometimes, and if you haven't been around here a while, maybe you don't know Jack, but Jack, certainly a founding father um, by faith of Christ Community Church, a man who's had great influence through the ministry of World Harvest and Sonship. He used to talk about the difference between an approval suck and a promise suck. Now, he'd use that, that graphic image, I'm sure you've heard around here before, of little piglets you know, trying to suck on their mama's teeth and how in reality we need to be that devoted to these promises of God that we draw life from them. That's what Peter's saying here. Everything you need for life and godliness comes from these promises because these promises ultimately are what you were made for. One of the things I've had to come to understand is that God wants me to relate to him more than just as a guy who tells me the truth, but as a one who loves me Deeply in his heart. And Christ community was a place where I came to understand that it's not just enough. It's not just enough to know the right stuff. But do I do I feast on Jesus through his word, through the sacraments? Is this a place where I've come to know the sweetness of these great and precious promises? In other words, what God made us for in the garden is not just to be his little worker bees. Sometimes I'll ask students, what do you think the purpose of your life is? And often they'll answer, especially if they've come from a Christian background, they'll answer wrongly and they'll say something along the lines of, well, God, you know, saved us to serve. Yeah, one level that's true. But if you just think of it in terms of he made me to sort of be his little worker bee for his kingdom, you've missed the central theme of the Bible, which is God made you for himself. Before sin entered the world, it's described as him walking with us in the cool of the day. This kind of rich, intimate relationship. I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews this fall. And Hebrews is so much about how we get access into the holy of holies. We can come boldly before the throne of God. It's not just enough to know that God likes me or even that he loves me, but that he welcomes me in. As Isaiah puts it, your maker is your husband. The idea that the one who made you and tells you how to live and has every right to do so is the one who marries himself to you. And I find often Christians fall into one or two camps. They either believe, yes, God is my maker and I better do what he says or he's going to get me. Or they believe he's my husband. He loves me no matter what I do. And the fact is both of those images come together in our God. He made us for himself. And, and really what the promise of the Bible, that I will be your God and you will be my people, that promise is a difficult one to keep. That promise where he promises to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent is a means to an end, in a sense, that God would be able to have us in his warm embrace. Again, it's what he made us for. So understand the promises are echoes of the promise And God is not content for you just to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel is about more than that. 
And God is committed to more than that. Second, the promises need to become bigger, not just in our head and in our understanding, but in our hearts. And one of the things I love about this passage is the way Peter calls these promises great and precious. Now that, you see, is the language not merely of acknowledgement, but of worship. When Peter thinks about the promises, he's tasting their sweetness. You see that? He doesn't just know the promises. He can quote them, I'm sure. But he's tasting their sweetness and he can't even talk about them without calling them great and precious. There's a a great verse. You should write this down and look it up later. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. It talks there about how God swore an oath to Abraham. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, but why did God need to swear an oath? People swear oaths because they're inherently untrustworthy and and the words that they speak so often aren't true. And, and, And for so many of us, some of our deepest hurts have been because of that very fact, right? But it says God swore an oath to Abraham. But God didn't need to swear an oath because his word is true. And his character is true and unchanging. So why then did he swear an oath to Abraham? Why did he say, surely I will make many descendants of you? Why did he say that? Why the surely? I mean, it's God saying, really, really, I mean it. You can trust me. But why would God need to say that? He is himself inherently trustworthy. And here's verse 17 of chapter 6 of Hebrews. It says this. Listen to this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed this promise with an oath. Do you get that? Did you hear God's intention in that? God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, not to Abraham, because actually this happened after Abraham had passed the test with Isaac. It was obvious that Abraham had trusted God. But God swears this oath. Why? So that the heirs of what was promised, that's you and me, would be very clear. Not so we would say, okay, got it. Yeah, good. Now I'm ready on to move on to the graduate school of the Christian life. I'm ready to move on to discipleship. I'm ready to move on to doing all the stuff I'm supposed to do. No, God says, I want you to be very clear about the unchanging nature of my purpose. It matters to God that you know and are very clear about his promise. And this is something even those established in the truth need to be reminded of. Look at verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, Peter says, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you know have, you now have. That's, uh, verse 12 is what encouraged me to preach this passage, really. Because Christ Community Church knows these truths. At one level, you could say, well, you know, here we're doing this series on the spirit of the promise, but we've done that a lot. We talk about that kind of stuff all the time. Yes, and by God's grace, I hope Christ Community Church will always be a place where we talk about these things. Because it doesn't matter how well you know them, you need to hear it again. There's another place where this is brought out in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes the longest explanation of the gospel that we have in the Bible. And in chapter 1, he says to the Romans, your faith is being reported all over the world. So these are people who are literally world famous for their faith. 
And they get the longest explanation of the gospel in the Bible. And, and if you've ever, um, if you've ever, you know, worked with people who've known the gospel a long time, you realize in some ways they need a longer explanation of the gospel because in some ways they think they know it. Right. And, and so it's so helpful for Peter to say to us, you need to be reminded of this again. I have this experience regularly. I especially used to have it back when I worked at Christ Community, where I would be meeting with students who'd grown up in the church. And as RUF at Belmont, a lot of the students that come to Belmont come from church backgrounds. In fact, one of the challenges, I think, of doing RUF at Belmont is not preaching the gospel to people who've never heard it, but trying to live and talk about the gospel in a way that people who think they've heard it and think it's not relevant to their life would you be open to the idea that maybe they don't really know what it is and have not really tasted its sweetness? In other words, if you want to pray for us, pray that God would open people's hearts to a rehearing of the gospel that really would be a first hearing of the sweetness of the gospel. But I, but I would have these experiences where a student would come to me often a couple weeks into their freshman year and they'd want to sit and get a cup of coffee and we'd chat about their spiritual life. And often they would be rather discouraged because back when they were back home in their youth group and they had somebody that called them up every week and made sure they were in the Word and all that kind of stuff, they, they were reading their Bible, they were praying. And since they've been at college, they don't read their Bible, they don't pray anymore. And they kind of come to me often wanting a little sort of spiritual kick in the pants. And I usually would, would start by asking this question. Okay, so I can see you're kind of discouraged and you're kind of struggling. Let me just back up a second and ask you, what do you think it means to be a Christian anyway? And almost every time I got the worst answers to that question. Do you know what the worst answer to that question is? Well, it means to try to evangelize, to try to read your Bible. It means to, to try to worship and go to church and, you know, try to try to witness to your roommate and say, really? You know, you're so mired in your own works righteousness that you didn't even hear the question I asked. Now, it's an important question. What do Christians do? Peter talks about this here. He doesn't shy away from saying this is how you should live and you should make every effort to live this way. But he says if you're not living that way, it's because you've forgotten not what you're supposed to do, but who you are. I said, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you didn't answer anything about that. You didn't say it means to be somebody who was lost in their sin, dead in their trespasses, under the just condemnation of God. And yet, by His grace alone, before the foundation of the world, He chose me in Christ. At a point in time, He adopted me. He made me His son. He brought me into His family. He justified me. He made me beautiful in His sight by imputing the righteousness of Christ to me. And he set his spirit to be a seal in my heart, guaranteeing all that kind of stuff. You can go on and on. Like, you're, you didn't think about any of that stuff when I asked you what does it mean to be a Christian. Like, no wonder you don't read the Bible. Why would you want to read the Bible and just be reminded of all the stuff you never do? <laughs> right? Unless somebody's pressuring you. But it's only when you understand the divine and precious promises that are at the heart of the Bible. That you can't wait to read it. That you can't wait to come and hear about it. You see, if people are failing to grow and flourish spiritually, what Peter says is it's rooted in them forgetting 
that they've been cleansed. Now, I know at some level that's more complicated than that. At one level, this is always true. Not just that we've forgotten it, like you can't define it or give the right answer on a test, but you've lost the preciousness and the sweetness of what does it mean to know, to know, to really know that when God looks at me, he sees me as beautiful in his sight. And what happens when you don't know that? Now, at the time of the Reformation, this is Reformation Sunday, so I might as well give a Reformation illustration, right? The time of the Reformation, these truths, particularly the truth that you could know where you stand before God, became precious again. I don't know if you know this or not, but singing, the congregation singing, had, had, had been forbidden from about the 5th century. Until John Huss in uh, Bohemia brought congregational singing back, for a thousand years, people went to church and they were spectators. And they didn't get to sing. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, because singing always intensifies your experience. Singing is a way that grief can find a voice to cry out to God. That's why so many of the Psalms encourage us to do that very thing. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to cry it. That's why we're to sing to get the truth into our heart, as Paul tells us in Colossians. Singing intensifies your experience. It's hard to really enjoy the sweetness of something. C.S. Lewis talks about this in one of his books. He talks about how praising completes the joy. That it's one thing for you to say, yeah, this is really great. It's another thing for you to praise it, whether it's to God or to other people. That it completes the joy. It even intensifies the experience. And one of the things that was so, so remarkably discovered at the time of the Reformation is that you can know what God thinks about you. You can know it. You see, the, the, the Catholic Church through the Middle Ages had developed this idea that assurance of salvation, knowing what God thinks about you, would make you lazy and unproductive. Fascinating thing is Peter says just the opposite. (laughs) That unless you know these things, you'll be lazy and unproductive. But the church had come to this idea, and it seems logical if you think that fear is the motivation to live the Christian life. If you think that thinking God is going to get me is the way to jury-rig my heart to keep doing all the spiritual stuff I don't like, well, then you have a hard time understanding The the whole basis of the Bible, which is it's the kindness and mercy of God that's designed to lead to repentance. That's Romans 2, 4. Or 1 John puts it this way. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. It's completely different from knowing and relying on your love for God. That's why so many students that I meet with are just burned out on Christianity because every time they go to worship, it's like them telling God how much they love him. But they never hear about how he loves them. It's always, Lord, I want to do this, I want to do that, right? And there's, there's a sense in which we need to know these things. But the church had decided that that would, that would be a problem. And as the Reformation started to rage, the Council of Trent, which was a gathering of all the kind of Catholic theologians to sort of say, how are we going to respond to the Reformation ideas? What are we going to think about it? They said this, assurance of salvation is a Protestant heresy. Heresy. The church taught that the only people that could really know they were saved were saints. 
And if they knew it, it was, a, it was an extra gift given to them. Now, all I'll tell you is that what Peter's saying is just the opposite. That assurance, knowing that you've been cleansed from your past sins, is the power to live the Christian life and to grow as a Christian. And at one level, like I say, it seems counterintuitive. But, you know, when we sang that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You're, you're, you're sort of entering back into the, to the discovery, the rediscovery of the gospel, and yet it's in the context of a battle. Do you know Martin Luther wrote his first hymn when he heard about two Lutheran boys who were burned for their faith. We don't sing that hymn because he mentions them by name, and it's, it's just sort of, you know, it's awkward to keep singing it because we don't know them. But he, he wrote this hymn when he got word that these two Lutheran boys died singing the Te Deum, an ancient Christian hymn. And you get the sense when he sings in that hymn that the, the word, the gospel word, has come again to us. And that, that there's preciousness. There's taste. You know, here's what's interesting. In the next century, after the Reformation had firmly recovered the ideas that God's grace is what you need and that Jesus alone is what you need, to be pleasing to God. After that was firmly established, there was a a Catholic cardinal who said that Luther damned more souls by his songs than by any of his writings. Now, okay, so from his perspective, what he's saying is Luther's songs were very effective. They were because people began to sing these truths into their hearts, particularly the truths that God has cleansed us. You see, there's, there's a fascinating book called The Moral, or sorry, The Imaginative World of the Reformation. If you're interested, you can explore this book. Peter Matheson wrote it. And he says that in, in that book, he says that when you think of the Reformation, don't think of it as just a social movement. Don't think of it even as just a revival movement. Think of it as the whole world turned upside down. And here's what he says. When your metaphors change, your world changes with them. Now, this guy, Peter Matheson, is an expert at the popular culture of the Reformation, whether it be the sermons or the wood cuttings or the, you know, the different art, all that kind of stuff. And he says that right before the Reformation, there is one primary metaphor for who Jesus is that dominates all of those art forms, and it's Jesus as judge. Jesus as judge. Now, is that in the Bible? Absolutely. But taken by itself, it's a terrible distortion of what the Bible says about Jesus. Where is, where is that precious truth that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ? And yet, as people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these people started to read the Bible for what it really said, Matheson says you see an explosion of all these rich metaphors. And people's faith just begins to explode and they begin to realize the beauty and believability of Jesus. And it changed them. And singing was a big part of that. Calvin, actually, when he went to Geneva, was confronted with a situation where people literally hadn't been singing for a thousand years. And he had not heard people singing, a congregation. But he wrote to the city fathers, if you want me to work here and to begin to see the work of the revival and the Reformation proceed, I think it's vital that we start singing. Because it's the only thing that will really help our cold, dull worship. And at this point, he'd never heard it, but he was convinced we've got to sing. And then he gets kicked out. He goes to, uh, to Strasbourg and he hears people singing in their own language to God. 
And he comes back doubly convinced and is finally able to, to institute it. And for the first time, people can actually sing the Psalms, these precious words to God, and they're able to, to resonate not only with the struggle, but with the belief that God loves me and I can know it. And the world has changed. John Huss was burned at the stake, the Council of Constance. And the Council of Constance in the 1300s reiterated this. If laymen are forbidden to preach, how much more are they forbidden from singing? Fascinating, isn't it? Like, how can singing be so, so dangerous? You know, a few years ago, the, the um, island country of Fiji canceled the annual Methodist hymn sing because they were worried about what might happen, <laughs> about how people might go from singing the gospel to thinking about the kingdom and the lack of kingdom righteousness in their world. Who, you know, there are people around that still think singing is dangerous. I don't think we think that very much because we don't think that singing those promises in our hearts do much of anything. But I think, you know, what Peter's saying to us here is often our diagnosis of what's wrong of, is, is wrong itself. That what we need are these divine and precious promises. Now, I'm one who's quick to assume I know what's right and I know what's wrong with people. But I needed to go back to this passage, and I would encourage you to think even in terms of where is there a lack of assurance that I'm cleansed, and how is that seeping over into every area of my life? Hebrews 9.14 puts it this way. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, and notice this last phrase, so that we may serve the living God. What Hebrews is saying is it's impossible for you to serve God. It's impossible for you to grow in the way Peter says you need to grow if you're not convinced that your conscience is cleansed and that you have been cleansed. Resting in the finished work of Jesus alone is absolutely vital for growth. And it's the core truth that believers are most apt to forget. I won't read this whole passage, but that quote from Martin Luther is fascinating because he talks about how I've been cultivating this truth that I'm saved by faith alone through Christ for 20 years and I still find it difficult to believe it. I love that because that's what I'm at. And whether you're part of the old guard or the new guard, what you need to know today is that the divine and precious promises are true. That God has promised that you will be his people and he will be your God. And he's done everything to ensure that. In sending Jesus, he's done everything. The God we serve and love is a tenacious God who makes and keeps his Promises, And we need to use these promises. Look at this lastly. Verse 4. Through these, through these promises, He has given us, sorry, He's given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now this is not saying that you get to become a little God. It's saying that you will begin to take on the character of God. That you will live in a different way through these promises. The promises are not something just to acknowledge and then put on the shelf. The promises are things you need to bring to bear against the battle of unbelief that rages in your heart and your soul every day. And in some ways, what you need to be encouraging one another with, what you need to be praying for one another, what you need to be counseling one another with are the promises of God. 
Because everything in our heart, everything in our heart fights against them and says, no, they're not true. Therefore, I need to to take matters into my own hands. I need to make sure that all my bases are covered. That's why Martin Luther, in contrast to that, said, faith in Christ is a living, daring hope. There's an audacity to it. To think that I could stand before God no matter what I've done. I could stand before God based solely on something Jesus did that I didn't even see. But that's exactly what's true. The promises of God made and kept change everything. And if there's not, if they're not precious to you today, then there's something else that's more precious to your heart. And do you understand this? Worship is about spiritual warfare. When you gather every Sunday, it's not just a time for you to learn something. It's a time when God has come to do battle against all the things that vie for your heart's affection. It's a time for you to be reminded that Jesus is beautiful, that Jesus is believable. This is why John says, you know, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Can the promises of God say to your heart, heart, you're wrong today. Heart, you think that I'm only worth what I can produce, what I can make, what I can do, or what I haven't done. And to that, God says, no, you're wrong. I'm glad you didn't do that. I'm glad you did that. Fine. But what I think about you is based on what Jesus has done. And it's not just enough for you to know that. You need to sing it. You need to pray it. You need to speak it to one another because these promises need to become great and precious in our hearts. So what does God think about you today? Don't say, how should I know? (laughs) Say, I know, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And that's the posture we come even now to worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your great and precious promises. We thank you that you didn't just make these promises, but you kept them in Jesus. And that everything that would make you want to run away from us has been dealt with. And everything that would draw your heart to us has been given to us in the righteousness of Christ. And that, Lord, even as you say over Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, may you open our hearts to receive this astonishing truth that you say that about all those who are in Christ Jesus today. And yet we come to you not from a place of triumphalism, of believing this and being able to pat ourselves on the back because we believe it so fervently. We come here today in a place of saying, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Lord, I have so many things raging in my heart, but help me to rest even again this morning in these great and precious promises that you are our God and we will be your people. No matter what, no matter how many things try to separate us from your love, whether they be our own hearts, whether they be even our own church, and sometimes we feel that, but yet, Lord, may you convince us again, may you help us to taste the sweetness again that you are a tenacious God who's made and kept every promise in Jesus. Let us come now and worship you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.